This morning's scripture passage is found in Genesis chapter 33, verse 18 through chapter 34, verse 7. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done this disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Well, good morning. (laughs) Interesting passage, huh? You know, it's a challenging one. I don't think it's preached very often. But all scripture is inspired by God, and God has a purpose for us in looking at this this morning. You know, when God saves us, he calls us out of darkness. Calls us to be people of light. People of purity. Godly people. But he leaves us in this corrupt, evil, sinful, messed up world. And that creates a lot of tension for us as believers because we're confronted daily with this. We can't escape it. It's in the news. We see what people do to one another, the harm they do, the evil that's perpetrated in this world because of sin, the destruction, the dysfunction in families. We see all that in the news, on TV. You just have to watch a sitcom or anything else. I mean, it's just there the values of this world, and it's shocking to us as believers if we're learning to walk in righteousness and trust Him and walk with Him. But not only is it out there on TV and news and whatever, but if we function very long, we see it in our own families, in ourselves, in our work. We're confronted with sin, with evil, with a broken, messed up world. And all this goes against the heart of God in us because we learn to long for righteousness and we're confronted with evil. And so there's a tension there we struggle with as believers. How should we respond to this? How do we live in a way that we're in the world but not of the world? Well, we're going through the book of Genesis and we've seen how Jacob spent 20 years in Haran. He went there to get a wife and He got Leah and Rachel, so he got a family that built up over time, and he gathered wealth. So he's in Haran, and then God comes to him and says, Jacob, it's time to go home. Go back to the land of your birth. And so in obedience to God, he goes. 
And now as he enters the land of Canaan, this land that God told him to go to, he shows up and as David just read, he builds an altar, but then he's confronted with great evil. And as we look at this very real passage, you know, Scripture doesn't mince words. It deals with reality and the reality of a broken, messed up world. And this passage is evidence of that. But as it confronts that, it helps us understand, I think, some wrong ways that Christians, the people of God, tend to respond to this evil, messed up world and suggests for us maybe better ways to respond. So let me pray and let's look at this passage together. Lord, it's tough for us being in this sinful, evil world and yet being called to be the people of God. Teach us today by your Spirit from your Word how we might live to great, more greatly reflect you, to be salt and light in this corrupt world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as David read, the story begins at the end of chapter 33. Jacob shows up in Haran and he buys a plot of land. And he builds an altar. And it's interesting to me that when Abraham was called out of Haran a number of years before, and he showed up in Canaan, in Holy Land, the Holy Land, right there in the same place in Shechem, first thing he did was build an altar. Jacob does the same. Shows up, builds an altar, which essentially is a way of saying, I will worship and serve God here. I will be God's man here. I will serve him here. It's an act of faith that Jacob does. To buy the land, to say, this land which is controlled by Canaanites, I'm trusting God said he would give it to me and my descendants, and I'm trusting he will. And he says, he named the altar, he named that place El Elohe Israel. God, the God of Israel. Now, Jacob is claiming whose, God, whose name God changed to Israel. He's claiming this God as his personal God, right here in this Canaanite, corrupt, evil world. It's an act of faith, but unfortunately, as we go on in the story, we see Jacob does not continue to act by faith, unfortunately. And then as David read, the story goes on. Dinah, the son of Jacob, or the, excuse me, the daughter of Jacob. Um, he has many sons, but the daughter, his daughter Dinah decides she wants to go out in the land. Now, she's probably about 15 years old at this time. So she was young, and it says that she went out to visit the daughters of the land. Now, she wants to go be with these other women. Now, you can't blame her. She had 11 brothers. She's kind of like, I'm tired of being with these guys. And she's attracted by what she sees among these Canaanite young women. She decides she wants to go be with them. And like most young women at that age, uh, they want to go check out the guys too, probably. I mean, you're kind of assuming that's what happens here. And, but this was dangerous. This was a bad choice for her. As Dr. Bruce Walkie says, this is an improper and imprudent act. As Sarna comments, girls of a marriageable age would not normally leave a rural encampment to go unchaperoned into an alien city. But Dinah, I think, living in a tent, 
she looks at the city and she thinks, wow, this is kind of exciting. There's men there. And so she's attracted and she goes. But the question that comes to my mind as I look at her going is, where's her father? Where's Jacob? Where's her brothers? No one's standing up for her. No one's defending her. No one's protecting her. No one's keeping her home or sending a chaperone to go with her. Why didn't Jacob protect her? We'll come back to that. So it says that Shechem, who is the son of the ruler of that city of that area, son of Hamor, very clearly sees her, takes her, and rapes her. What a sad picture. But isn't that a picture of the world, that the mentality of the world that we're surrounded by, you see what you want and you take it and you use it for your own ends. The world tells us that's how you should live. Hey, see what you want, go for it. Go for the gusto. You deserve it. See it, take it, use it. But then there's an interesting twist in verse 3 that the narrator puts in here in this story. It says, He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And literally it says, His soul cleaved to her. And he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. See, Shechem sleeps with her, rapes her, but then decides, wow, I really like her. I love her, in fact. And so he wants to marry her. Again, the words really reflect the contrast between what you see in the world versus what God's plan is. Because it says his soul cleaved to her. That's the same word that's used back earlier in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you get the order there? (laughs) You make the commitment, you cleave, you leave your family, you cleave to a wife by commitment, and in our culture that's a public marriage ceremony, you cleave, you make that commitment, and then you become one flesh. Then you unite physically. But notice how the world always turns that around. He sleeps with her first, and then he decides if, you know, he likes her and decides, well, I do like her, and so now I'm in love with her, and because I love her, it justifies everything. Again, isn't that what our culture says over and over again? Love justifies everything. If you're in love, it's okay to sleep together. It's okay. Anything goes. Nothing else really matters if you have a romantic love for one another. But this is clearly wrong and damaging when we twist things the other way. The right order is to cleave and then out of that commitment to unite, to become one. But unfortunately, in our culture and in our churches, so many of our young people have bought the lie that sex is just something to enjoy, and, but you, you, if you really are in love, anything goes. It's okay. That is such a lie. But that's the pressure of the world, and you see it right here. And too many of us have been seduced by the world to believe the lie. And so Shechem falls in love and he says, not even in a nice way, he just says, Dad, get me this little girl for a wife. I want her. 
see and take. Again, it reflects the selfishness of the world in which we live. This is the world that's trying to conform us to itself. These values that we get confronted with that are so wrong, according to biblical values. So how do Jacob and his family respond? Well, as again, David read verse 5, Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah's daughter. He knew about it. He heard about it. He heard what happened to his daughter. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. And in fact, as the story goes on, you don't even really see evidence that he even told the sons. I mean, they obviously heard about it. But what you see in Jacob is silence. No response. He doesn't even really show up again until the end of the story. Later, when there's negotiations over Dinah and whether she can be married, he's not even involved. It clearly states in the passage that Jacob knew what happened to his daughter, and yet he does nothing. How horrible for Dinah. So often when someone gets abused or raped or sexually abused, that's terribly painful. But often a a deeper betrayal happens when a parent who finds out about it does nothing or responds in a completely inappropriate way. That's a greater betrayal. And Dinah experiences that here. And just to add to the awfulness of this, three chapters later, when Jacob's son Joseph is assumed dead, he falls apart. He grieves. And yet you don't see any sign of grief with his daughter Dinah. That's a sad picture of Jacob here. And the suggestion is that It says very clearly in the text, Dinah was the daughter of Leah. Remember Jacob? He loved Rachel. He got stuck with Leah. And now that Leah's daughter's in trouble, he doesn't care. But when Rachel's son is in trouble, he falls apart. Sad picture of parental favoritism. Jacob's sons, in contrast... It says they grieve and they are furious. They're angry, which is a very appropriate response. They grieve and they're angry, although their response later is very inappropriate. It's way overboard. It's way too much. So then you go on verse 8 and following, you get these negotiations happening. And again, Jacob is absent. But it says in verse 8, Hamor spoke with them. Hamor, Shechem's father, comes and says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. Then you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. So, Hamor comes and is negotiating on behalf of his son. But I want you to notice again, what a picture of the world. Because though this terrible rape has just happened, what do you see in Hamor? No apology. Nothing. And in fact, we find out later in the passage 
The Dinah never ended up back home. They're keeping her prisoner. They've kidnapped her and are keeping her in the city. So he's negotiating from a position of strength, right? (laughs) So uh, we've got your daughter. Now, um, can we talk? My son wants to marry her. Can we do this? And again, that's such a picture of the world around us. It's this picture of wanting to minimize sin, not take it seriously, minimize it, and come on, join with us, be part of us. See, the world wants us as Christians to not stand out and be different and not worship God. They, they're fine if we worship God privately in our homes, but not let it affect the rest of our lives. But come, intermarry with us, assimilate with us, be one of us, be part of us. And the world is constantly throwing at us that pressure to assimilate us into itself, to keep us from being the people of God. Faith is okay as long as it doesn't disturb the status quo. That's the pressure of the world here. But then you see Jacob's sons, verse 13 and following. Again, Jacob's absent. They answer Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit. They decide they're going to get back at them, so they deceive them because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, we can't do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people." But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, there's a veiled threat there, right? We will take our daughter. In other words, they'll have to go into the city, defeat the Shechemites, defeat the Hivites, and take Dinah because she's a prisoner and go. So they say, you want us to become like you? No. If you want to get along, you have to become like us. Do you get what they're saying? These are the chosen people of God. But what they're saying is, if you want to get along, no, you have to become like us. Again, we've tried to do that too often as Christians. We try to make the world somehow conform outwardly to us without a change of heart, and that's what they're doing here. In fact, they're using it, obviously, to attack them. They're using their religion to try to get back at the world and control the world. And we get into trouble when we do that. You need to become like us and you need to conform outwardly, but it doesn't matter where your heart is. Too often Christians use their religion to get control or power from others in the world around us. And and then we wonder why we're not respected by the world because we just use the same tools they do. Well, the negotiations go on and the Canaanites negotiate with themselves and they basically say, hey, we can make money off these guys. We're going to get their wealth. They're really wealthy. And so let's do this. We'll be circumcised. That must have been an interesting conversation. Shechem and Hamor coming to the rest of the men in the city. Yeah, guys, let's do this. And they're going, no way. (laughs) But they decide, you know, hey, it's worth it because we can get their wealth. We can assimilate them to us. Verse 25 through 29 says then what happened. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain. (laughs) Yeah. 
But two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house. Aha, she was a prisoner and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in their houses. Dinah gets raped by Shechem and so Jacob's sons rape and murder and pillage the whole city. What an awful story, huh? And the end of it isn't a whole lot better. Listen to verse 30. Listen to Jacob's words. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You brought trouble on me by making me odious. You made me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And if my men being few in number, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed, I and my household. <laughs> Woe is me. How sad. He's not concerned about what happened to Dinah. He's not concerned about what his sons have just done, this horrible thing and the immorality of it and the terrible, violent nature of it. All he's concerned about is himself. Jacob came into the land and built an altar to worship God, but he's far from that now. What a sad picture. He's only acting in fear. And the sons ended with this, but they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? They're just justifying what they're doing. They have no remorse. They're just simply justifying what they've done and in a sense attacking Jacob, saying, she's our sister. You, she may be your daughter, but you don't treat her as a daughter. We had to do something because you didn't do a thing. There are many tragedies, I think, in this story. One is, of course, what happened to Dinah and her abandonment by her her father. There's a tragedy on how Simeon and Levi respond, and we find out at the end of the book of Genesis, in chapter 49, how they are rejected because of their violence as Jacob gives a blessing. He says, because of your violent nature, you are rejected and will be assimilated into the other tribes. You will not gain an inheritance. There's a lost respect of the sons for Jacob, understandably. There's a loss of the opportunity for Jacob and his family to be the people of God in a corrupt world. They've just made a mess of things. So what do we learn from this, this gruesome story? God included it for a purpose because he wants us to think this through and learn some things from it. And I think we can learn some good principles here about how we can deal with a sinful, corrupt, messed up world in which we live. We need to realize, as we see here, that first of all, the world will always try to conform us to itself. It will not want us to stand out and be different. It will not want us to be people of faith. It will not want us to worship God wherever we are. The world will always try to conform us to itself. 
And there will always be that pressure. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the world, squeezed into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why it's so important that we gather together and hear the word and that we read it in our own, on our own and we study and pray so that our minds might be transformed and we might learn what it means to be the people of God in the midst of a corrupt, evil world. The world wants to use us and even our religion to squeeze us into its mold. So what are, how should we respond? Well, let's look first at the wrong responses we see in this passage. First response, I think, is represented by Dinah. To conform. To conform. She was attracted to the world. She heard its promises. Here's life. This is so much better than all those restrictions you have to live by that God wants you to come get what we have to offer and the glitziness and all those promises that the world offers us. And too many Christians look just like the world because we buy into that and we conform because it's safe, it's easier. And out of fear, we live just like the world or out of attractiveness. And it's always dangerous because if we do that, the world will always use us and abuse us like happened to Dinah. A variation of this is how many of us, and this is a struggle for us, we... We live for God on Sunday morning or growth group during the week or whatever, you know, when we have our religious moments, but then we go to work and we just can't see how God fits into this. And so at work or in our neighborhoods, in our families, wherever, we look just like the world around us. We just conform because it's easier. But what happens is we lose our chance to be salt and light to be what Jesus wants us to be, to to bring light in the midst of the darkness when we conform and live compartmentalized lives, separate our faith from our daily living. Why do we do that? Because we listen to the lie. A second wrong response, I think, is represented by Jacob. That's the response to flee, to flee this kind of dark World, And this is where we as Christians just withdraw from the world. Like Jacob here, he was totally silent. He just shut down. He did not deal with it. And because we get overwhelmed by this sinful world, we too often out of fear of it and the evil in the world, we as Christians just withdraw and we hide and we make sure our worlds are controlled so that we're only around Christians and we stay as safe as possible. But again, when we do that, we've lost our saltiness. We are no longer light. We're living by fear rather than faith. We lose our influence on a world that so desperately needs the truth and needs the kingdom to be brought into a broken and hurting and needy world. And when we do that, we're forgetting that Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. When Jesus went to the cross, he defeated the powers of the world. Yes, we need to make sure that we keep living in a godly way, obviously. But we don't have to be afraid of it. We can enter the world with power because Jesus is is in us. As we just sang, your name is a strong, mighty tower. So 
Jacob's fleeing from the world is not a good picture for us. A third wrong response, I think, is reflected in the brothers. And that was to fight. This is a bad world. We will condemn it and judge it, point out where it's wrong. We will try to overcome it. We'll use political power. We'll use numbers. We'll use whatever we can to try to fight against the world because it's the enemy. It's the adversary. We need to point out where it's wrong. And again, as Christians, too often throughout history, we've fallen into that way of dealing with the hurt and broken and evil world, trying to control and defeat the world around us. But in the end, we always lose. God is not glorified by that. And the world doesn't respect us. It's happened over and over again in history. One of the classic examples is in Geneva in the 1500s during the Reformation. John Calvin was there and they decided we are going to make this a godly city. And so all the people, whether they were Christians or not, had to follow all the Christian rules, including going to church, etc. And they were punished if they, were, if they didn't. Well, after a while, John Calvin stepped back and said, wait a minute, we've gone too far, but the city council kept going. And eventually, because someone didn't believe the same, Michael Servetus, he was called a heretic and he was burned at the stake and it just got crazier and crazier. And it did not bring God's kingdom. It was a way to try to control and defeat the world as an enemy, but it doesn't work. So to fight the world is not a good response. So what is the right response? Well, I think there's a hint at the beginning of this passage where we saw Jacob, he shows up in Shechem, buys some land, and builds an altar. Now, he didn't follow through on it, but when you build an altar, what you say is, here, in this place, in the midst of this corrupt society, I will worship and serve God. I will be God's man. I will be God's woman right here in this job, in this neighborhood, in this dysfunctional family, in this place. I will worship and serve God. I will bring God's light into this place of darkness. We build an altar when we do like Jesus tells us the end of Matthew 25 as he's talking about the judgment to come and shepherd separating the sheep and the goats. He says in verse 34 of Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. We build an altar when we love the needy around us, when we reach out to prisoners. Yeah, but they're evil. They're corrupt. (laughs) Jesus says, love them. Reach out to them with the good news. We build an altar when we do like my friend who sent me an email just this week where he said this, thank you for your prayer support. God has answered many prayers here at and he names his secular company. And even in this month, sales have grown 10% over last month, helping us to meet cash needs here at the business. 
And then he says, I want to be a Joseph for the owners and, and employees. Now, we haven't gotten to Joseph yet, right? But you know the story of Joseph, how he simply kept serving God right where he is and be, was and became Potiphar's right-hand man, became the right-hand man to Pharaoh in Egypt in this huge, secular, corrupt society. And he had a wonderful impact because he served God there. And so my friend says, I want to be a Joseph for the owners and employees and be a refreshment to the people that God has put me right in the middle of. That's building an altar. I love that. He, he's seeking to make this company be successful, but he's seeking more than that to be God's man, to build an altar right in the midst of a secular company. We build an altar when we do like my niece, Jeannie and I have a niece who lives in California in the Bay Area in a place that is one of the richest communities in the area. And you drive in there and behind, in front of every house is an electronic gate. And all the gates say, leave me alone. I mean, that's the message. And my niece lives there, our niece. And she started calling up neighbors and inviting them to coffee and building a relationship with them. And then she said, hey, you want to come and let's just have kind of this get-together and let's kind of have a little Bible study and just talk about what Christianity is. Most of them are unbelievers, and yet she invited them in. And she got a group of 10 to 15, pretty much every week, 10 to 15 come to her house, and they study the scriptures together. And she's had the opportunity to minister to them through affairs, through divorces, through depression, through temptations to have affairs. I mean... She's had an incredible ministry right in the middle of a corrupt place where everybody, by the way they build their house, is saying, stay away from me. She's built an altar right in the middle of Atherton, California. We build an altar when in a public school we say, let's get together as believers and let's start a prayer group and let's pray and let's look for ways to reach out to the other students. We build an altar when you reach out to a neighbor who's got tattoos and piercings and has a mess in their yard and you're just going, boy, I don't want to be around that person, and God says, reach out, invite them for coffee, love them, care for them, help them on their car, whatever. You build an altar when you do like a friend here at Cole who's retired, and how's he using his retirement? He's using it to go visit shut-ins and encourage them in the Lord and to share Christ with them. You see, to build an altar is to say, yeah, I know I'm in a corrupt world, but I will worship God right here where I am, wherever I'm placed, and I will serve him right here where I am. Perhaps the greatest example is in John chapter 4. Jesus is walking and he's in Samaria. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well? Here's the interesting part. It's in this exact same city. Shechem, nearly 2,000 years later. Jesus is walking where Jacob and his sons walked. And he meets a woman who's caught in sin and corrupt and she's had five husbands. She's living with a man. She comes at noon because no one else will be there by the well to get water because she's full of shame. Why? Because she's used to the religious people of the world rejecting her, condemning her, 
for her lifestyle. And what does Jesus do? He builds an altar right there. He talks to her, reaches out to her, offers her living water. She puts her faith in him and becomes the evangelist that goes to the Samaritan village and it says many believed in him because of her words. Jesus is giving us a picture of what we are to do. Yeah, it's a corrupt world, but our job isn't to point fingers at it. Our job is to share the love of Christ, the living water that he offers the people might be set free. I want to close with an email I just got yesterday from David Roper, where he tells the story of a small rural church here in Idaho where the church owns some beachfront property on a river. And it's a beach that a lot of the people in the community like to use. One day, a man in the church congregation expressed concern over the legal implications of outsiders using the property. Suppose somebody's injured, he said, the church might be sued. Notice the response of fear. Though the elders were reluctant to take this stand, he convinced them that they should post a sign on the site informing visitors that this was private property and warning them away. The pastor did post a sign. It read, Warning! Anyone using this beach may, at any moment, be surrounded by people who love you. Folks, that's building an altar. May we be people who don't conform or flee or fight, but who offer living water to a broken and dying world. We're going to take communion now to celebrate that living water that God has given to all of us. We don't deserve it. We're all like Jacob. We make the wrong choices. And yet God loves us and keeps reaching out to us. Because of the cross of Christ, our sins were covered. He took our place. So I will pray and then we will take communion together to celebrate the gift of life he's given to all of us who don't deserve it. Lord, thank you for how real the scriptures are. (laughs) How you don't mince words, you speak right to the reality of life in a messed up world. But thank you that you want to use us to be instruments of yours to bring living water to a broken and thirsty world. And now as we turn to have communion together, we celebrate as your people that you have called out, not because of our goodness, but simply because of your love. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you that we can celebrate as the people of God together this morning, a called out people a saved people. And as we take communion together, may we rejoice in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.